So I decided I could either mow my grass or I could breathe. Like anybody else like facing that choice right now, you feel like all of springtime is conspiring against you. Someone offered me a cough drop and I'm like, like, shh, quiet, the pollen can hear you. Shh, don't say a thing. Weeds and seeds are very complicated things, aren't they? So we're going to be in Matthew 13 today. Matthew 13, this is the uh, second week in a sermon series called Kingdom Parables. And uh, we didn't really intend this, but this idea of like seeds and weeds and birds and all this other stuff that really coincides rather well with our like Ohio springtime, right? Um, so Matthew 13, some of us are looking at it though and going like, well, all that stuff is really great, but if these parables are going to be relevant to me, maybe you should include some like antihistamines or cough drops or whatever. Like, where are those? Why didn't the Bible talk about those? So I feel you. Um, we'll get there. Weeds and seeds are complicated things. So if you remember, Matthew 13 is like a hinge in the gospel of Matthew. We talked about that last week. Jesus' teachings are turning up the temperature with the religious establishment, and things are getting very uncomfortable for Jesus and his followers. And so he tells these parables, these stories, to draw a line in the sand, to really create clarity. Parables, you might remember, are memorable stories that teach a valuable lesson in a creative way. Memorable stories teach a valuable lesson in a creative way. And it's worth backing up a little bit to see why Jesus actually talks in parables in the first place. I skipped over this last week um, just to kind of get through and into this idea of a parable. But I want to back up. Um, Verse 10, if you've got a Bible or you've got um, a phone, get there. Uh, We're going to look at Mark 13. We're going to start in verse 10. This this won't be on the screens. This is just to sort of set the context. So you can sit back and listen if you like. The disciples came to him and asked him, talking about Jesus, why do you speak to them, the crowd, in parables? And he answered them. He says, well, for to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, if I'm the disciples, I'm sitting there going, well, thanks for the clarity, Jesus. That makes no more sense. Really? Like, come on. But here's what he's saying, just to sort of summarize. He speaks in parables for three reasons. One, to arouse the interest of those that are curious about Jesus. Those that are on the fringe leaning in but then also to frustrate those who are cynical about Jesus, those on the fringe leaning out, and then also to sober the expectations of his own disciples. Success, it would seem, in the kingdom of God is not about the crowd, not about the hype. Success in the kingdom of God is a little bit different, and that's what our parable about the weeds this morning will be about. Success in the kingdom of God is on God's terms. So if you're able, would you stand with me? Uh, We're going to read from Matthew 13. We're going to take a look at this whole text. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. So if you get there on your Bible, on your phone, this will be on the screens behind me. So verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in the field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Slide down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. The disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field, which I think is really charming. They're like, okay, you just told us one parable, we didn't get that. You told us the reason, we didn't get that. And you told us another parable, like, back up Jesus. Here's what he says. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Field is the world. The good seed are children of the kingdom. The weeds are sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. We'll stop there. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that you want to teach us what your kingdom is like. That represents your heart, your heart to be known by us. In this time, God, would you open our ears, open our hearts to what you would have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Seeds and weeds are complicated things. So in this text, there are three realities, three realities that we got to confront if we're going to really understand what Jesus is saying. And so just a heads up, this parable to me is probably the most jarring out of all of these parables in Matthew 13. It's very jarring to our modern ears but it really can be distilled down into one point, and that's this. Success in the kingdom of God is on God's terms. So first reality, there is a sower. There is a sower. You see that, right? Right there in verse 24. He says the kingdom of God could be compared to a man. Goes out, sows good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then he went away. And you see how this sort of develops. This at first sounds a whole lot like the first parable we took a look at last week. Right? There's a sower, there's a field, there's, but there's some differences. First off, in this one, there's only one field. Right? Last week, we looked at four different soils. This one, there's only one. And also, he's not just the sower. Did you catch that? He's also the owner of the field. That'll come into play in just a bit. There's some key differences between these two parables that we're going to want to lean into. In first century Israel, sowing seed was primarily an individual effort, right? You can imagine that. We talked about it last week, a sower coming down and and throwing seed. But harvesting, that was a communal thing. That was something everybody got in on. We all harvested together. In Jesus' time, a sower would have sowed seed any time between November and January. It was prime planting season. Barley was the first crop to come up, about four months, And then wheat would come up about six months, roughly like May or June, kind of where we find ourselves right now. And when we would come up, everybody would get together. 
Wheat was a high-yield crop, but it requires patience, something we are all just awesome at, right? So the sower sows, verse 24, six months go by when the enemy sneaks in, that's 24 and 25, and then it's time for the communal harvest, and we can see that something is not right. So this is a really gross illustration, but I think it might communicate the horror and the shock that these workers saw when they saw weeds among the wheat. Uh, John and Pat Thomas, if you know the Thomas family, they have an apple butter cook-off every year. And uh, so here's the deal. How many of you have ever been to that, by the way? Like, it's a super fun thing. So Pat Thomas has this, like, 150-year-old big old copper kettle, and, like, there's this big paddle, and it's on an open fire, and, like, you take turns all stirring the apple butter, and it's, like, a big communal thing. Like, bring the lawn chairs, bring the, the kids, bring the Frisbees, like, bring the cornhole. It's going to be incredible. And, like, you just go out and you stir the apple butter, and then they let you take some home, which is really cool. Pat approached me after the first service, and she said, well, thanks, because now i got to find, like, quart jars for 800 people. So... You can talk to Pat. But here's the deal. Imagine if you go to the apple butter cook-off and I go over to that copper kettle and no one's looking. Okay? Kids are playing Frisbee. Dave is beating Alex at cornhole. John's probably building or fixing something. No one's looking. And I go up to that copper kettle and I just go... And I pull back. Are you even going to want any of that anymore? No. You're like, you can keep your cord jar. Not interested. That's kind of the point here. There's something about this field that's not working right. There's something in here that doesn't belong. And so, quick point of application. This isn't the major point of this parable, but it's worth diving into a little bit. If you want to take Jesus' role as the sower seriously, you've got to get serious about bearing fruit. You've got to get serious about bearing fruit fruit because that's the sower's intention for you he wants you to bear fruit that has seeds and those seeds fall and they become more trees and you have the orchard like last week you remember but you've got to get serious about bearing fruit so according to galatians 5 what does that look like a christian who is bearing fruit loving joyful peaceful patient kind and good full of faith self-controlled and gentle that's what christians are supposed to look like interesting Bearing fruit. Here's the, here's the reason for that. The enemy cannot stand a fruitful Christian. You want to be a bitter Christian? Awesome. Satan doesn't have to work hard. But you start being loving, joyful, peaceful, patient. It perks his ears and he's very interested in what you're doing. So the fruit has to be real. No duct taping like fake fruit on a tree. Okay, It's got to be your fruit, real fruit. That's the first reality, the sower. But then there's a second reality. Second reality is this. There is an enemy. And we shouldn't miss this. Take a look in verse 27. The servants of the master come to the house and say to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. Isn't that sentence just like so final? enemy has done this so the servants and the friends come home they're seeing something that and they get a bit nervous there's weeds among the wheat the good seed are the children of the kingdom but they're not alone interesting the servants didn't see the enemy come in and do it they just see the effects of the enemy's work the fact that they were sleeping doesn't mean that they were lazy it's more of a commentary on how insidious and how sneaky and how underhanded 
the enemy is. He waited for the perfect time when no one was watching and he just slid in there. The word for weeds here is not a general word. It's not like crabgrass or dandelions or just weeds. It's a very specific kind of weed in first century Israel that was designed to mimic wheat in its early stages of development. And it was impossible to tell the weeds from the wheat until the fruit or the heads came up, at which point it was physically impossible to separate them without killing both. The roots wrapped themselves around the roots of the wheat. Six months later, heads are coming up. Workers look at the situation and say, this is impossible. Only a master can separate this. Yes, more on that in a minute. So they ask the sower owner master two questions. First off, what happened? Like, and he says, an enemy has done this. And then they ask a second question, which is really more of a suggestion. They say, do you want us to pull them up? Right, which is like such a guy thing. Right, I, I, you know, like Lego Batman. I imagine like the Lego Batman voice, like, "Do you want me to go kill them all right now? I got it. Like, I got some like full-on kill them all, take no prisoners, spectricide. They're gonna be gone." And Jesus is like, "No, just leave them for a minute." I think he's probably anticipating Peter there. That's how Peter thinks. Like, let's do it, right? And Jesus is like, "No, just just wait a minute." True for a lot in life, right? The workers are so focused on fixing the problem, the master is more focused on understanding the problem. <laughs> We're so quick to help Jesus out with suggestions on how to fix the mess that we're in. (laughs) And he just wants to get to our hearts. So we'll get to his response and the meaning of that in a second. But we need to stop and consider this idea of the enemy. Who is this enemy? And I think it's important because I know a lot of Christians who think that the enemy is other people. People who have a different political party than you people who believe differently about family than you do, even people who are openly antagonistic toward the things of Jesus. But according to this parable, people are not the enemy. There's something else behind there. In 61 AD, 30 years after this parable was spoken, the Apostle Paul sat down in a Roman prison cell to write a letter to a church in a city called Ephesus. And this city was steeped in like cultic practices and rituals. Like nasty, sick people doing nasty, sick stuff. Like stuff that would make our culture look like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And when Paul tries to say, okay, how do I help this church survive in this culture? He doesn't rebuke the people. He instead says this. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Don't make the mistake of thinking that people are the enemy. People are not the enemy. What that means is there are people in the field that we rub elbows with who offend the wheat. But that offense does not make them the enemy. Being a Christian doesn't mean you get to be a jerk. Taking a stand for Jesus is not the same thing as having an opinion. It probably means having a prayer life. When I see a Christian who's angry with someone who disagrees with them, I see someone who has lost his sense of mission. He doesn't want to win people to Jesus. He just wants to win an argument. And those are two very different things that come from two very different hearts. He's forgotten James 1.20 that says man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. So if you want people to be righteous, you don't get there by being angry. So if the people aren't our enemy, who is our enemy? 
Now get this, this is fascinating to me. In Jesus' day, sowing weeds in somebody else's wheat field was a crime, like bioterrorism. But what's more fascinating to me is how that crime was prosecuted. The crime of sowing weeds in somebody's wheat field was prosecuted as a crime of revenge. The enemy sows weeds as an act of revenge. Revenge for what? Losing the war. When the sower, that's Jesus, remember, when he stepped into this world through his incarnation, it signaled the beginning of the end for the enemy. And that is a very powerful thought. When we think about Jesus' incarnation, right? Christmas, right? Jesus came into this world. We think about Christmas. We think about joy to the world and snowmen and ho, ho, ho and all that stuff, courier and knives and yada, yada, yada. I want to give you a different version of the Christmas story, one that you may not be familiar with. And this is from Revelation chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. Revelation chapter 12. And if you've never read anything about or from Revelation, like buckle up, because there's some weird stuff. Revelation 12 introduces a character called a dragon. Okay, this dragon is a, is a different angle on the Christmas story. So listen. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth to her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's very clear messianic imagery. This, this is not just an ordinary child. This is a, a promised king that's coming. Verse 7, a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, now here's, where this, here's his conclusion. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you and is in great wrath because he knows his time is short. If you skip on down to verse 17, here's the last little image. He says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So not a very charming Christmas card, right? So like if somebody this year says Merry Christmas to you, you can say, yeah, you know what, like Merry Christmas because that ancient devil serpent has been thrown down and like the armies of hell have been vanquished forever, like fruitcake. Hmm? Don't do that. That probably would not go so well for you. But it's an interesting take on what's really happening around Jesus' incarnation. So let's pull that together. Just quickly, Revelation 12 is going to help us understand this enemy. There's four things that are true about him. Very quickly, one, he's already been defeated. Two, his time is short. Three, he's mad about it. And four, he's making war, a war that he's already lost. It's very important for us to understand how the enemy factors into Matthew 13. 
this parable of weeds and wheat. The devil is an intruder. He doesn't belong here. He isn't supposed to be here. He jumped the fence. He has no authority. He has no claim on anyone or anything. He has zero authority. He comes like a serpent ready to deceive or a lion ready to devour, but he is a liar, a thief, and a cheat. He lies about the finished work of Jesus, your justification, and he cheats the glory of Jesus, your salvation, and eventually he'll try and undermine the promise of Jesus, your sanctification. But he will have none of those things because in the end, his head will be put under the heel of our King Jesus, who is not a liar, a thief, or a cheat. Our King Jesus is a hope giver, a life exchanger. He will lose. And he has no authority or no claim here at all. So some of you are scratching your head saying, well, like, if that's true, why doesn't he just, like, give up? You think he would, right? But his pride has been offended. His rule has been stifled. He has a lid on him. And he is angry. And so he is out for revenge. As we think about the battle, this idea of spiritual warfare, I want to give you five quick points about it. And you can jot these down if you want, or you can just sit back and listen. Um, The Screwtape Letters, it's this book by uh, C.S. Lewis. And he says something really interesting about spiritual warfare. Here's what he says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall when thinking about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Do you catch all that? What's he saying? Is he saying, neither of these extremes are really healthy for you. The truth is probably somewhere right in the middle. And so I'm going to give you these five points, and I hope they they just center you when you think about spiritual warfare in your life. So first reality is, one, the battle is already won. That is the first thing you need to know about spiritual warfare or spiritual attack. The battle is over, and Satan lost. We just read that in Revelation. The enemy has suffered a fatal wound from which he will not recover. But it doesn't always feel like that, does it? We live in this tension that theologians call already not yet. There are some elements of the war that are over, but like an aftershock from an earthquake, the earth is still rippling from his defeat. But those ripples that we feel are his death throes. He won't be around for long. Second thing you need to know is the victory belongs to Jesus. This is super important because you and I do not fight the battle ourselves. Right? We only have a share in this victory because of Jesus' obedience, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' resurrection. And so what that means is if you are under spiritual attack or you are engaged in spiritual warfare, your first response should not be to knuckle down and summon your inner William Wallace and say, let's go. Your first reaction should be to call on your king and say, come fight for me. Third reality of spiritual warfare is this. Jesus won with authority. Jesus won with authority. He is the co-creator, eternal, second member of the Trinity. The devil is not his counterpart. That's very important to understand. I call this Warner Brothers theology, right? Remember Yosemite Sam with like 
angel on one shoulder, like devil on the other. Remember that? Great cartoon, terrible theology. Here's why. Because it creates this sense of like duality that like there's like an even arm wrestling going on here. Like who's going to win? Who's going to win? Not true. The devil is a created being whose pride refuses to allow him to submit to the authority of his creator. Fourth thing. The battle increases when the gospel advances. Tell me you haven't felt that in your church ever. The battle increases when the gospel advances. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, would say it like this. The devil never kicks a dead horse. Right? So like, devil's not interested in you if you're not doing anything. And if your church isn't doing anything, he's not interested, he doesn't care. You don't have to work. But you start preaching Jesus from your pulpits, right? You start praying in his name with your spouse. You start praying over your kids and with your kids. And you start living your life on mission for Jesus. And hell gets really nervous because you are taking ground in the name and the power of Jesus. Last point. The battle won't last forever. I think this is important to know because some of you are engaged in a spiritual battle this morning. And I know that when you are engaged in spiritual battle, it's the only thing that you can see. You've got like bullets flying around you. You've got explosions happening around you. There is smoke and fog filling the battlefield. And you go, how are we going to get out of this? But you should draw great comfort from the fact that although the battle in which you are currently engaged, that smoke and that fog, the bullets flying, draw great comfort from the reality that in the master plan of what God is working in his world, this battle will be like a footnote on the bottom of a page in tiny print when the whole story has been written. It won't last forever. The smoke will clear, the bullets will stop, the explosions will be silenced, and when the fog lifts, we will see King Jesus in victory. In 1527, Martin Luther captured that sentiment with a poem, and it went like this, and lo, this world with devils filled would threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. In case you're wondering what that one little word is, it's Jesus. I've been in those rooms where there's intense spiritual battle, and some of you have too. And it's heavy. And there is one name that you say, and hell flees. And his name is Jesus. And that sentiment is alive and well in our worship today. It's why we talk about Jesus all the time. So, if you're going to get serious about engaging the battle under this sower king, Jesus, and pushing back against the fall, you've got to get serious about bearing fruit. We talked about that a little bit. But you've got to get serious about a second thing. You've got to get serious about proximity. You've got to get serious about proximity. Put practically, what do the hurting around you need? They don't need your opinion. They need your fruit. They need to see that this Jesus that you worship is real. 
And your fruit in your life is evidence that he's doing something in you. But here's what worries me. I know a lot of Christians who would rather live in a world without weeds because it's more comfortable. It's easier. It's cleaner. But that's not the world that we live in. We have been planted among, not apart. We're called to live lives of proximity. So here's what I mean. Not a trick question. What is this? An apple, okay? Anybody know what kind of apple it is? Anybody want to guess? Josh, can I borrow you? Yeah, come on up. Josh is going to be my, he's going to kill me after this. He's like, dude, what? Come on up. All right, this is an apple. It looks like a gala apple, right? So Josh, if you would, would you take a bite of that apple for me? Oh, you were about to. It's a fake apple, right? Give Josh a round of applause. Thank you for being an unwilling victim. I think Josh is going to beat me up afterwards, so it's all right. So here's the deal, though. I know a lot of Christians who are content with, like, fake apple spirituality. Like, look, from a distance, my life looks awesome. You can even tell what kind of life it is. Like, oh, my gosh, look at that guy over there. He's so spiritual. But then you get up close, and you're like, eh, I don't know. When you really let people in, you really let them in to know you, to know what bothers you, to know your weaknesses and your failures and your struggles. When you bring them up close, they're like, Mwah. So fruit in proximity. If you are a Christian and following Jesus, get close enough to people where they can see it. Is your Jesus real or is he fake? And proximity will tell you that. But there's this lingering question out there, isn't there, that we need to turn our attention to for these last few minutes together. What is the difference between the wheat and the weeds? Because that's the scary part of this text. So with that in mind, last reality. Third reality is there is a harvest. There's a harvest. It's all been leading to this, right? There's this sharp edge to this parable that last week's parable didn't really seem to have. Jesus is driving to a point. So let's look in verse 28 again. Verse 28. The servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he says, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We need to remember the events that are surrounding the telling of this parable, right? Jesus has been getting a lot of attention and now he wants to clarify his intention. Remember their second question. He wants to pull them up. Curiously, the master says, no. As if to say, none of your stinking business. Wait, this is my world, and I will handle that. This is Jesus asserting his authority over his creation and all the people who fill it. But like the parable of the soils last week, Jesus offers us an interpretation, which is super helpful. Because like if you're ever going to interpret the Bible, it's probably good to start with what Jesus says it's about. Like, I don't know, like Bible study 101. So slide down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. I just love that. There's like, we're still confused, Jesus. And he answered, 
Now he gives seven characters and seven interpretations. Here they go. They're going to come quick. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in verses 39, or 37 through 39, Jesus gives like this seven like little bullet points, super helpful. But then like he narrows the lens, sharpens the focus, and things get really specific, like creepy specific. So like by the end of verse 30, or 42, it's like a scene from Saw 4. You're like, wait, what's, what's happening here? This is terrifying. I don't want to look at this. So what's he talking about? Who's heading to this weeping and gnashing of teeth? Jesus says, all causes of sin and lawbreakers. And you can imagine the room, can't you? All 12 of these guys just go like, dude, don't tell him what we did when we were kids. Like, shh. But seriously, Jesus raises this impossible standard. Like, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers? Like, that's me. I've done that, right? Like, I've caused people to sin in my life. I've broken God's law, like all 600 plus of them. Man, well, let's just start with the Ten Commandments. Maybe let's ease our way in, okay? So don't worship any other gods before me. Like, guilty, because my affection went somewhere else this week other than God. So skip on down, all right? How about, like, honor your mom and dad? Nope, because I was 13 for a whole year, right? And so, nope, out. How about, like, no lying, stealing, cheating, like any of that? Like, okay, no, I'm done. I'm out. I'm done. I only got, like, through six of them. And I'm already done. And you just know this is going on in these guys' minds. Peter, James, and John, and nine other men just sat there in silence. And Jesus isn't trying to be manipulative here. He's not trying to be scary. He's trying to get to a point. We are all jacked up. We are all infected with sin. None of us have our stuff together. And that's his point. He's not trying to make you feel guilty or nervous or terrible. He's just being very honest with you. It's like if all of us went over to California and like stood on the shore and looked over to Hawaii and tried to jump. Like some of us may get further than others, but like none of us are getting there. There's a standard and we've all fallen short of it. And Peter, James, and John, nine other men fall completely silent. But then Jesus continues, verse 43, here you go. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And a question emerges from the darkness slowly, like a hopeful whisper that you're almost too desperate to ask. Jesus, how do I become righteous? Like me. Do you know what I've done? Do you know what's inside my head? All the things that I keep hidden and don't want anybody to find out about. How do I become righteous? Really? Clean? Holy? Like clean slate? The Apostle Paul wondered the same thing. And so 40 years after this parable was written, um, the Apostle Paul wrote another letter. He wrote it to a church in a city called Philippi. 
And in this, in this letter, he just gives his like spiritual resume because Paul's like the man at keeping the law. And he says, I've kept all of God's laws. Like I'm so zealous. I even made up laws and made sure people kept them. I made them feel guilty if they didn't keep them. And then I showed off how awesome I am. And I'm so great, I'm Paul. And then he says, but I wasn't righteous. I couldn't earn it. There was still a spot that I couldn't get out. There was still something I couldn't get rid of. There was still a tension I couldn't shake. And so he says this, see if you catch it. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I might gain Christ, be found in him, here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Did you hear that? Not a righteousness of my own but one that comes through faith in Christ. Remember earlier when I said that success in God's kingdom is on God's terms? What's the term? Righteousness. Perfection. And I'm not it. And that's terrifying. But guys, this is super incredible that God, high, holy, and above, completely different from anybody in this room, out of his profound love for you and me, would design a way that you and I could be made holy, could be made righteous, and then he just gives it to us in Jesus. He says, here, this is what I want for you. The theological word for that, in case you're interested, is imputed righteousness. It's like God comes up to you and wraps this righteousness around you so there's nothing of you that's, that's not hidden in Christ's righteousness. Some churches teach that like, you have to do things to be made righteous, like, like confession or going through things or jumping through some hoops or like maybe hang out in purgatory for a while so some of those things could be burned off. The only problem I have with that I have a lot of problems, but the main problem I have with that is that somehow it says that Jesus was not enough and that I have to contribute to something that Jesus didn't get done. And so my life and most of everything in the New Testament is about Jesus is enough. There's nothing that you can add to him. He is complete. He is the perfect sacrifice. Like we mentioned earlier in worship, he is this spotless lamb. He is our way to be made righteous, period. And you can know that. You don't have to wonder about it. So zoom back to Matthew 13. What is Jesus saying? If you're going to be my disciple, you've got to let me make you righteous because there is a harvest coming and there are righteous wheat and unrighteous weeds and I am in the wheat business. So what do we need to get serious about? Last point, then we'll wrap up. We need to get serious about our story. Get serious about our story. If there's a harvest coming, and if we're leaning to a time where the sower, owner, master will come and separate these weed and wheats, what does this mean for you? Get serious about where you stand with Jesus. Because we could argue all day long about who's ahead of wheat and who is weeds and yada, yada. But Jesus doesn't spend much time doing that. He just says, I'm concerned about one thing, wheat. It's what I do. So two questions. Have you let Jesus make you righteous? Or are you trying to do it on your own? 
Are you trying to earn God's love or have you let him make you righteous? If you've let him make you righteous, who else knows about that? Have you told your story or are you hoarding your story? If you're trying to earn it on your own, my advice is just give up because you can't do it. Paul tried. He couldn't do it. I've tried it. I can't do it. Give up and trust Christ's righteousness. That's what he's pointing toward here. For a long time, I thought that mission was like a sales pitch. You know, like I was trying to like evangelism was like this sales pitch, like one of those like old vacuum cleaner guys from like back in the day, like anxious, nervous, don't want to go to hell. Have I got a product for you? You know, and and so, but the problem with that is, is that mission's not a sales pitch because Jesus isn't a product that you buy. You can't buy your way into this thing. You just accept what he's already done for you. And so mission and evangelism starts with Jesus on my story. Like, look at what he's done for me. Look at what this Jesus is doing in my life. We can argue theology all day long, but here's the thing. Nobody can argue with your story. And if you think that's too simple, you've never read the Gospels because that's what they do. Woman at the well, John 4. You've got to come see this guy. Look at what he did. Peter, when he goes home and he brings his little brother Andrew at the very beginning, he says, come meet this guy, Jesus. Come on, come on, come on. It's just my story. And so we got to get serious about it. That's the best thing about the gospel, that our creator can peer through this like marred image of God that I have messed up. And he says, nope, I still want you. You are still my child and I'm going to get you. I want to call you home. I believe no one is too far gone. No one is ever too late. You are never too broken, but you've got to give up. Stop pretending like you got your stuff together. You've broken his law, you've broken his heart, and he wants you back. I believe there's two, two people, two kinds of responses to this parable. Some people, when Jesus said all this, some people sat back and said, eh, nothing new here. Glad I'm already righteous. And then there's some people, though, because the Gospels tell us there were more. There were others whose hearts leapt at the idea that they could be loved and be made righteous because they knew how desperate they were. Success in the kingdom of God is on God's terms. Let's pray. Our Father, you are very good to us because you're the judge, you're the jury. You're the sacrifice, you're the provision. And so we say we can trust you. We love you. God, we say thank you for Jesus who is a good sower. We say thank you for calling us your sons and your daughters if we're hidden in you. And I ask God if there's anyone in this room that needs to do business with you and they do it today and they wouldn't wait and they say, I'm in. I want this man, Jesus, to run my life. I'm trusting him with my forever, and that starts today. Father, you are undoubtedly good. You are undoubtedly holy. I ask God that you would bless us today. Encourage our hearts. Draw us to you. Use your spirit in our lives. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.